Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored, a podcast where I unfold, with the help of my brave and curious guests from around the world, how sustainability practices are integrated into business operations in various industries. My name is Anna, and I'm an environmentalist, sustainability consultant, and the host of this very show. Today, we have an amazing interview coming up about a a super interesting social enterprise initiative aimed at protecting 1 million acres of critically endangered rainforest, some of the Earth's most valuable resource, while empowering indigenous artisans to rise out of poverty. I invited Danny Blue, the owner and founder of 1 million acres, or OMA for short, for an interview to share his ideas and messages with the wider audience. With the goal of protecting 1 million acres by 2023, Danny and his team are literally on a mission to save the world. I'm thrilled, excited and honored to have Danny with us today. Can't wait to start our interview. But before we do start, you can use this moment to subscribe to the podcast to always be up to date and maybe even one step ahead than anyone else with the sustainability news uh, and innovations across countries and industries. All right, let's dive right into our episode. Hi, Danny. Thanks for joining me today at Sustainability Explored weekly show. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about your initiative called One Million Acres, so Danny Blue is my guest today. He's an owner and founder of this amazing initiative or social enterprise, as you mentioned it in one of our emails, um, with a mission of protecting 1 million uh, acres of endangered rainforest while also empowering indigenous people. Uh, first of all, how far are you in this goal? Out of 1 million acres, <laughs> where are you now? Well, first off, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's really great to connect with other people who, you know, are inspired and care about topics like this. So thank you so much. Um, I definitely have a much better understanding of how big of a number one million is now, (laughs) because I think we really just kind of starting out, but we've so far been able to help fund the protection of about 10,000 acres of rainforest, which is pretty amazing. I mean, when you think about just the perspective of it, but Long way to go. Uh, One million acres is really almost kind of just a first milestone anyway. The goal is to really build this movement out and to really champion a a sustainable way to have uh, rainforest conservation happening on a regular basis for quite some time. Where did you start your sustainability journey? You're based in California now. What was your I don't know, uh, light? What was your event that triggered you? That's a good question. I'm not sure if I had a particular aha moment as far as starting me off in my sustainability journey in particular. I mean, like you said, I am in California. There's all kinds of things always happening around here with uh, the green movement and, you know, even seeing the state initiating policies around getting rid of plastic bags and then different forms of electric transportation starting to pop up here and there. I've been surrounded by it for quite some time, but I will say that I'm not the typical person that, you know, came out of the womb with the mission to be in the green movement and has been doing something like this my entire life and always knew it from a kid that I was destined to do something within the environmental movement. As a matter of fact, kind of the opposite. Up until maybe seven years ago, I was living a pretty traditional life as far as American standards go. I was working this corporate job, making really great money, living down by the beach in Venice, you know, I had a really great <laughs> setup. I had uh, money for savings and I was traveling and it was, you'd think it was, it was perfect. And I just, I really wasn't fulfilled. There's something, and it sounds so cliche, you hear so many people have this story, but there was something really deep in me that made me realize like, I could ride this out for as long as I want, if I want, you know, I'm not even having to work too hard. A lot of my money that I was making from this job was residual and 
there was something just that wasn't fulfilling about it. That was probably if there was a catalyst for me going out seeking something else, whatever that was, that was probably the spark that had me kind of leaving on this journey. Are you familiar with the book, or it's a study actually, but I think it was written into a book called Drawdown by Paul Hawken. It's been called the most comprehensive study on, on climate change and the various different ways that we have opportunities to help combat it. So it's, it talks about all of the different things that we as humans are participating in that are contributing to a degrading planet, climate, utilizing resources faster than we can replenish them. And I think when I came across that study and that book, that was what really first got me interested in, A, sustainability. I, I was blown away to learn about certain things like food waste and how food waste is one of the leading contributors to climate change and not even just the amount of food that we scrape off of our plate into the trash, but how much energy it actually takes to raise food from the ground and send it there and send it there and send it here and process and then get to our plate. And, you know, so that was, I think, maybe one of the first things I learned about that really got me interested in wanting to know more about other things that may contribute to this. I was already very passionate about outdoors and nature and contributing as a personal donor to organizations that help protect the rainforest because I love animals. Large number of endangered animals actually uh, call the rainforest home. So I was constantly connected in that way. But then seeing how deforestation in the rainforest was also listed in the list of drawdown as one of the leading causes of climate change, that was probably what started me on the journey of wanting to see what else is there as far as like how else could I help over and beyond just my own personal contributions. Right, and, and why rainforest in particular? You could have started with anything locally based, let's say food waste, right? Uh, right where you live. Why rainforest? So far away. So far away, yeah, I don't know. It's, there was something that was calling me deeper than what would be perceived as just like a, a conscious awareness. I just, I felt this calling. Um, there was like a romantic of the rainforest and, you know, all the documentaries I'd watch. I'd always be very drawn to the rainforest episodes and just the abundance of life and these ecosystems and just the sheer amount of biodiversity that exists in these ecosystems and to just watch it was really the nature documentaries and shows that really pulled me in and to see these like other planets almost thriving in this way where it's literally life that is just expressing itself in all forms and so i just was always very drawn to it i don't know if i realized at that point that i felt like i was directly connected to it because yeah the rainforests have a little bit of an out of sight out of mind People are so far away, people don't think, oh, well, it's affecting me. But it was, again, through my pursuit of learning more about that through these different studies, through these documentaries, and realizing how connected we all really are and how actually dependent we are on these ecosystems that may not be in our backyard, but are just as important, if not more so, to our survival. So true. I've been to Brazil in December last year for whole months. Yes. And the first episode I released this year was about uh, Amazon rainforest, where oh. I spent three days, only three days, but it, it completely blew my mind. I, I know I saw what you were talking about and what we are going to talk about. December was just the start of the rainy season and our local guides told us that if you come in June, July, the water level will rise so much that you will see all this biodiversity, the sloths, the jaguars, everyone sitting just on the tops of the uh, crowns of the trees. 
but it's also the, the time where there are most mosquitoes. We've been lucky, not prepared for malaria or anything. Anyway, so it, it was a mind-blowing experience when I realized people live everywhere. Why would you live so far away from the closest, biggest city? Whatever can happen to you, you need a dentist, I don't know, you broke a leg. Why are you so far away? Why don't you, why don't you live somewhere where it's more convenient? At the same time, I think I understood why. There is some, this natural, probably a little, a little bit romantic component to it where you just, you get hooked. Yeah. So where did you start with the rainforest? Where, where, when was your first trip? Well, the first rainforest I went to was actually Costa Rica a long time ago. This was before, I think, any like direct connection I had to the project itself. But the first time I went down to the Amazon was in Peru, somewhat more for just like a, a recreational kind of trip. But I was also already starting the process of wanting to learn more about some opportunities that in ways that in which I could help with this project that had already started to happen. So that was the first trip. It was really, though, it was my trip to Ecuador uh, when I went down to Ecuador and I had an opportunity to go stay in a couple of the villages of some of the indigenous communities. That was the spark. Like, that was really the catalyst for creating this opportunity, creating this initiative with OMA, One Million Acres, to create a project that could help. It was at that point where I learned that the lack of economic opportunities for these indigenous communities is actually one of the biggest things that's driving deforestation. You wouldn't think like that directly would be responsible, but the fact that there's just not a lot of economic opportunities leads a lot of these indigenous communities oftentimes to have to find other ways to support themselves. And you wouldn't think of indigenous communities as people that would participate in logging or even working with the oil companies. But unfortunately, a lot of times that's, that's what happens. You just reminded me, our point of departure to the depths of the Amazon was the city of Manaus. I might be mistaken, so I have to double check, but it seems to me it's uh, the capital of the state of Amazonas in Brazil. And what you know drew my attention was that uh, in the city of Manaus, which is very industrial, you see kind of like headquarters of Siemens, um, Huawei, Philips, uh, some big names. And we asked our guide, why is it the case? Why not Sao Paulo? Why not Rio de Janeiro? And he said, to keep people busy, to distract them from deforestation, to, to pull them towards these enterprises, to, to give them job, to give them work. And yeah, that was surprising to know that big corporations decided to stay there. It's a little bit hard to travel because it's not a, a transportational knot. But yeah, that was the case. And so then yeah. you decided to, to do something about rainforests and protecting the land. How exactly? Well, so, you know, like I said, I was already personally involved in supporting some organizations that were doing this work. So the, what, the main organization that we support through OMA is called Rainforest Trust. And they are one of the highest ranked charities on charity navigator which is a third party company that that ranks various different charities based on their transparency and their effectiveness efficiency with their funds so it's a really great way to see who it is that you're you know donating your money to if you want to support organizations like this and they've been doing this for 25 years and they have a very specific system where they go in and they purchase these big plots of land and they put it into a trust that's um that's owned by the locals and then they they use additional resources to create jobs and education systems for the locals so that they know how to protect it it's not just buying the land and then you know walk away and then maybe it's just going to be destroyed so i was already donating to them and what i saw was that for a very little amount of money every month by donating i was able to help fund the protection of quite a bit of land and there was a moment where I realized that the opportunity here for this business 
could not only be like buy a product and we'll donate a portion to the Rainforest Trust and you can help protect this many acres of rainforest or this much land, but the real opportunity was create economic opportunities for the indigenous communities, find a way to give them work, create something that through that product could be sold and then a portion of the proceeds could be donated to Rainforest Trust. So it almost kind of creates a compound effect to where by creating the economic opportunities and the jobs for the indigenous communities, we're already building a system to promote conservation and to combat deforestation, to stop a lot of the people that would normally go into these other areas that are, that are causing deforestation. And then on top of that, we also take a portion of those proceeds, support Rainforest Trust. We have another organization that we support now called One Tree Planted. So it also, we're funding the planting of a tree. So I have this comprehensive approach now. So it's a bracelet, you know, that we've created with the indigenous artisan communities. So every bracelet now has kind of like a three tiered impact approach. So the, each bracelet is creating a new sustainable job for the artisan. And a portion of the proceeds from it goes towards protecting one acre of rainforest through Rainforest Trust. And then an additional portion goes towards the planting of a tree in the same area. So now it's kind of like this really comprehensive approach where we're protecting first, we're reforesting areas that have already been damaged, and we're building out a whole economic ecosystem in this area to really try and, and maximize the amount of impact that we can have with, with this model. How easy is it for the charity, for this organization to work in, by the way, in which country? Where have you started? In Ecuador? Ecuador is where the artisans are that we work with. The conservation efforts that we're supporting are in both Peru and Ecuador. It's all, all in the Amazon region right now. So how easy is it to keep this going uh, as an organization, as a trust, uh, regarding the political situation? I'm thinking about Brazil and all the corruption scandals and the fact that, uh, the, you know, the president gave literally the green light for logging, deforestation, this agricultural activities, burning of the land for agriculture because beef production and so on, and yeah. uh, meat exports. What are the challenges in, in where your organization is operating? Well, yeah, it's a real issue. It's definitely a little bit more of a higher level conversation that I think that organizations like Rainforest Trust probably have a little bit more visibility into the specifics of it. I imagine in countries like Brazil, there's definitely always going to be, you know, some more challenges. I mean, there's challenges everywhere. In Ecuador, they have a lot of stuff going on in their political landscape as well. The whole thing is, is just about money. And that's what, you know, it comes down to. And there's still a lot of work to be done in that realm of creating, you know, additional protections, putting protections in place for the indigenous communities themselves, but also for these lands. But the one thing I will say is the, the system that they've created through Rainforest Trust to be able to have these plots of land purchased and protected, they're paying for these large, you know, plots. It's not like you just buy an acre and then you get another acre and you buy an acre and you get another acre. They have these large multi-million acre plots of land that are being, I guess, technically auctioned off. So I don't know the full specifics of whether or not the systems are being put in place that are given full legal protection from a lot of the illegal stuff that's happening. But I do know that they do have it worked out in a way where they're working locally. Any of the areas that they're working on with these campaigns, they're working with many of the local on the ground grassroots organizations that are directly connected with the people in the government in those areas. So there are systems in place to have as streamlined of a process possible to have these areas protected in the best way possible. But again, at the end of the day, we never really know with what's really happening at the top of the chain and with all the issues around money and especially people without opportunities, there's always going to be a concern 
with how do we make sure that once these this land is purchased and protected, that it's truly it's protected in perpetuity. So part of that, I think, is also in the model that Rainforest Trust has, which involves educating and employing and staffing a lot of the local communities in ways in which they can continue to support the conservation. Again, it's really making sure there's like a maintenance system set up there so that it's not just left alone, that if somebody did come in and try to do illegal logging in those areas, that there would be somebody there to help mitigate it. Yeah, so it's really about collaboration on all levels, the governance, uh, local governance, this uh, trust, the people. Uh, Tell me more about how it works. So people are mostly occupied with making these bracelets. How much do they cost? The bracelets are $24. We actually just got done doing a crowdfunding campaign for them. As a matter of fact, there's a post crowdfunding kind of pre-sale page that's still up right now until, uh, I don't know, we may run it for another couple of weeks, but we were running a crowdfunding campaign where we were selling the bracelets for $20. So they're still available for that. Once the dust settles from the crowdfunding campaign, this is really more to raise all of the initial funds for this. And then once we move it over into our just our online store, retail store, our normal retail costs will be $24. Mm-hmm. So these bracelets are made uh, on spot in Ecuador or uh, Peru, and then someone is shipping them across the globe? Yeah, so the bracelets are handmade. And the thing about the bracelet is I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just another thing. You know, there's a lot of companies, anywhere you look online now, everybody's got some kind of social give back model. And it's become so ingrained into our culture that there's a lot of people that use greenwashing in a way to just say, well, we're just going to either say we're going to give to this cause or give to this cause. But the thing that we're doing in itself is a little detrimental. So you'll see that in a lot of times where there's companies that are doing just like some maybe made in China plastic Mm -hmm. junk that is ultimately just going to end up in a landfill And so you have to really kind of consider with projects like this, is this taking the entire life cycle of the the business into consideration? So that was a big thing that it was really on my mind when I was creating this, which is why the bracelet that we've created with the indigenous communities is made entirely of organic materials that are sustainably sourced from the Amazon. So the bracelet itself is actually biodegradable. It's only made from two materials. One is called tagua, which is a nut that grows on the palm trees in Ecuador. And the other is called chambira, which is, it's a leaf that just comes off of the palm trees and they'll take these little fibers off of it and kind of roll them in their hands. And it's, so it's completely natural. They'll dye all kinds of different colors. So it's amazing. Like both the tagua and the chambira can be made into literally any color under the sun, all from natural vegetable dyes. So the entire bracelet is completely organic. It's biodegradable. The artisans will make you know everything by hand there, then have everything shipped to me here in the States, and then I'm kind of shipping everything out from here. I'm still somewhat in the beginning stages of learning the challenges of international because we actually have a lot of support from our crowdfunding campaign. A big majority of the people that have come in to support the campaign have been from overseas. We've had like France, UK, Ukraine, Netherlands, Australia. I mean, there's people from all over the world that are really supporting this, which is really amazing to me. But it's also making me realize like, I'm going to have to get a pretty good grip on understanding what the shipping restraints or or whatever might be and I, I guess I'll find out soon enough because there's always you know the issue of additional customs and VAT taxes and stuff like that but in the meantime I'm just moving everything forward and excited that it's really kind of become a global a global movement a global initiative somewhat overnight over the past month which is really exciting wow I guess 
Part of the issue when people are donating is transparency. People want to be sure that their money is used um, to a proper cause. Have you had anyone, I don't know, asking you about, uh, can you show me the pictures? Can you walk me through what you're doing? Oh yeah, as a matter of fact, I was literally just responding to somebody recently because I'm very transparent and throughout the crowdfunding campaign, I'm sharing updates and news and making sure people see that we are directly connected with the organizations that we're contributing to as vetted, verified corporate uh, sponsors, corporate partners on their website as well. I understand there's a lot of people that get burned online from people that don't have integrity. And integrity is the number one core value I have for this project. And I, I would, you know, do things the way that has integrity over the easy way any day. I recently had a, somebody who all of a sudden started putting comments and started sending messages, like sent about 10 messages in a matter of, I don't know, a couple hours, all of a sudden saying that this is a scam, that we are based in Canada, and that we are, I don't remember the specific nature of it. It was very out of the blue, but it was all completely false. None of the information that was being said was that it makes me realize that there's one of the most important pieces and there's always going to be people that are concerned because there are scams like that that are happening. So the best thing that I've been able to do up until this point is just to be in communication and I'm constantly, you know, trying to provide updates with people on where everything's at with the project, making sure that, again, people can go directly to the organization's page to see us listed there. My goal as I continue to grow this is to ideally grow it into a certified B Corp, uh, which will allow us to have more channels of transparency into the supply chain. One of the other things that I've taken the extra step for is had the whole project vetted through an organization called the World Fair Trade Organization. They make sure to vet out projects like this for their integrity with using fair trade practices. So I've taken as many of the steps that I can to really ensure that people know that there is integrity at the heart of this project. But I also realize that I'm like, okay, I get to understand that I am committing to the fact that are going to be people that no matter what I do, no matter how good I do it, will come out of nowhere and tell me that it's a scam. And I had to like really reconcile that because I was like, do I want, do I want to do this? Like, do I want, am I ready? Am I prepared to like, I really am passionate about this. I really want this project to work, but am I prepared for, you know, the, the toll on, you know, my own just personal mental <laughs> side of things, because I will, it's, it's just part of the process. And I think that's, that's the case with anything, no matter what you're involved in, no matter what you do, there's always going to be people that just simply don't believe. I think that a project like this is going to take on even more of that. I have been putting myself out there for almost a year now and there are always people who say no you're lying no it's not true what you say in december we we had a very nice talk with laura tannenbaum a former probably you know her former science communicator from nasa she's okay. by the way might be your neighbor somewhere in california she i think she's from pasadena or based in pasadena right now and um she expressed one interesting thought. She says, you know, how much time does it take um, a scientist to, to, you know, to set up an experiment, to collect all the data, to run it through the stats, to come up with the study, to write it down, to correct, to edit, to peer review before something is released into, into the world? And how much does it take a climate denier? Well, we, we were speaking about uh, climate issues. How, how much time does it take a climate denier to leave one comment? You're all liars. So yeah, just um, keep doing what you are doing and, and, uh, and everything else will follow. And it's true, people like that are everywhere. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you, 
this is the question that was rotating in my head for a while. When I am trying to explain, you know, every plastic item you take is going to end up, you never know where. How do you explain people who are not from South America, who are not living in the rainforest, so Europeans, Americans, North Americans, that rainforest is, you know, is a common issue of everyone who's living on planet Earth how to educate people in this regard. Yeah, that's one of the most, you know, important topics for projects like this, how to get people to care enough. Because, you know, at the end of the day, compassion is an amazing attribute that a lot of us have. But as humans, we are very self-serving. And no matter even the most compassionate of us, at the end of the day, we're very much fueled by our own personal uh, desire to survive and to thrive. And so there does need to be some sort of a personal connection. And I think that, you know, people really just need to understand what really is the opportunity that's being given to each and every one of us right now with coronavirus. I mean, you and I are sitting here speaking across the world and we're literally experiencing the same exact thing. Granted, we have different elements to it within our own regions, but like we're all going through this global reset in a way that everybody's connected. And so I think that it's very important for people to understand that this whole thing is connected. We're all connected in a much more profound way than we understand, especially when it comes to the Amazon and rainforests they call the Amazon the lungs of the planet for a reason. The sheer amount of not only oxygen that the trees create, which you know a lot of people will argue that the vast majority of the oxygen that's created within the Amazon is just immediately consumed back into the ecosystem. So we can't count it towards our own oxygen. But the reality is the whole system is such a living, breathing ecosystem and all of the carbon that's being stored within the, the ecosystem, within these rainforests, is massive too. And it's a thing that I don't think people realize is that all of this carbon that trees store is being held contained from the atmosphere. As soon as you cut these trees down, that carbon is just released back into the atmosphere. People need to understand that it's not just about, well, oh, whether or not these trees will create oxygen that is necessary for me to breathe. But it's seeing it as like, if you look at the whole your, yourself, the whole earth is your body. And you think about one of your lungs is about to fail and go out. We, we would be pretty concerned that the rest of our body is going to be affected by that. And I think that that's the understanding that people really need to start taking into consideration. Over and beyond that, anyone at all that has any attachment that cares about animals, that loves animals, animal rights advocates, people that love to champion, you know, animal rights and the protection of endangered species. The protection of the rainforest is probably one of the most comprehensive ways to protect as many species as possible in as quick amount of time. I mean, the staggering amount of species that live in rainforests that we're losing on a daily basis because of conservation, I mean, because of deforestation. You know, I think the estimates are somewhere around along the lines of over a hundred species every day are going extinct, not just of animals, but of insects, of plants, of, you know, all of this, this biodiverse life is going extinct. Yes, there's a direct relation to the health of our planet with the health of rainforests that impact everyone, but also just the survival of all of these other amazing species that are also necessary to continue this web of life and um, support this, the growth of these networks of life within these ecosystems. There is another aspect I wanted to share, uh, the aspect related to land use and that I read a study recently, um, a study on how uh, land use is improper land use can trigger release of various viruses and what we are living through is one of potentially one of those examples because they're still not sure that this COVID-19 originated from 
well known yeah. market. One hundred percent. That's it. That's definitely one of the. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, that's probably one of the most valid and relevant topics that people should be aware of nowadays. It's huge. You know, as we continue to encroach on these these ecosystems and push further and further into these wild animals territories. Yeah, we are opening ourselves up more and more to be exposed to these zoonotic diseases. It will just continue these pandemics, these unknown viruses will continue to be an issue as long as we continue to keep pushing into these into these ecosystems and, and disrupting the, the wildlife's habitat for sure. And I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't even think about that, but that's that's probably one of the most important and directly relatable issues that is happening right now. Um, meanwhile, were there people who, for example, said, uh, here I am, I want to donate, but don't send me anything. Like, I don't want anything. I just believe you, trust in you. And Yeah, there are. And again, because integrity is such an important piece of, the, of who I am as a person and how I operate, I, I send those people, if anybody just wants to donate to the cause itself, I usually direct people to the organization, to Rainforest Trust. And I'll usually say, you can donate directly to the organizations themselves to help protect as much land as possible. Because our project is not only in support of the conservation and reforestation efforts, but it's also in creating these, these job opportunities for our indigenous partners. I am also considering figuring out some additional opportunities that we can build into our own model that people can still do the donation directly to us without receiving anything, cutting down even more on their carbon footprint with yeah. their lack of any products and anything like that in which we would still donate to the organizations but then we could also contribute the funds the additional funds directly to these indigenous communities so it's still helping to impact them directly without them actually having to make anything so that's down the road and hopefully at some point sooner than later to wrap up this interview, do you have one piece of advice for the listeners? Something you could say everyone would benefit from doing or reading or thinking about? The, the book I mentioned earlier, the study, so you don't even have to get the whole book. I would say the study drawdown, it's very, it's very like comprehensive and there's a lot of data and uh, like statistics and stuff. So it's a lot to digest, but just the, uh, it's like a, the list of the top 100 solutions to combating climate change. I would say that's one of the best things that everybody can just take a look at and just understand. Because every time somebody looks at that list and understands it and then talks about it with another person, all of a sudden people are starting to learn more. And people are starting to learn what are the ways that you know we can each individually help combat climate change. And as soon as you see you know, you read about the food waste thing and you see the, the different connection to how much energy it takes just to eat food. It makes you start to wonder, maybe this whole growing my own food or at least buying locally or buying in season is really not such a bad idea. And it's really not such a, you know, hippie kind of concept that it's more everybody should really start taking on. So I think that's a really great place to start because not one thing. It's just more of like an understanding of a bunch of different things people can do. And then I think that just really just feeling into how the connection with all of us, I think that compassion, you know, over and beyond just this project, like people just starting to learn how to just have more compassion for each other and realize that we all are going through this and that we all are connected. I feel like that is the real work for us as humanity, as we kind of move into what this next phase of human evolution looks like, is to have a greater understanding and a greater awareness of how we can respect each other more and have compassion for each other more. And that in turn will give us the ability to want and to be inspired to help do things that are in support of the collective more than just 
oh, well, I'll plant a tree in my own yard because then I'll get the fruit from it versus I'm in this with everyone else together. In what ways can we come together and help for the greater good? Probably one last question. Um, how the pandemic changed the state of art? The closure of borders, what's going on there now? Yeah, well, everything is closed right now. As a matter of fact, I just got a message from my point of contact, who she's the one that I'm working directly with. She's taking the kind of lead on it. She sent me a message that one of the villages that we are working with has just had their first uh, case of coronavirus that showed up. And she's, I think she's 21 years old, the woman that had it. So I'm still waiting to see how this unfolds, but it's serious because, you know, in these indigenous communities, they're far away from any big cities, any big real potential medical assistance. They're definitely much more vulnerable and susceptible. It's real. It's definitely slowed things down as far as like the process for the project, like the operation. It's definitely, you know, the timelines have kind of shifted, but it's just caused me to just, again, be more in communication with our people. And I think that for the most part, people understand. There's a lot of people that are saying, you know, I supported this, where's my bracelet? And again, I don't think that there's, there's just a lack of understanding of how the whole thing works. My hope is that as the dust starts to settle in the next month or two, maybe, that things will slowly start to open back up, but who knows? I mean, I have a feeling everything's going to be different in some capacity for a long time. Well, hopefully, you know, I always wish we will get out of this crisis better than we entered it. Yeah, that's the goal. Thanks so much for your time and for this interview and for sharing your wisdom and your experience with the one million acres. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks. Ciao, ciao. Uh, this land use study that I was looking for and mentioned during the interview is called Infectious Disease Emergence and Economics of Altered Landscapes Final Report. The document was produced for review by the uh, USAID RDMA, so Regional Development Mission for Asia uh, from USAID, and the suggested citation is EcoHealth Alliance uh, 2019, Infectious Disease Emergence and Economics of Altered Landscapes. This is how you can find uh, the paper, it's a, it's a PDF um, report that uh, can be downloaded at ecohealthalliance.org. 88 pages, uh, a very interesting read, to be honest. It covers Malaysia, Thailand and Indonesia over the period from October 2013 to February 2019. And um, not to recite it all, I'd like to, to give you a piece from um, Monga Bay. It's an environmental media outlet that I follow and can recommend. Uh, from the article authored by Thais Borges and Sue Brantford on April 15, 2020, called Rapid Deforestation of Brazilian Amazon Could Bring the Next Pandemic. So they cite in the article in Monga Bay, in the more, let's just say, digestible form, a part of the report uh, from EcoHealth Alliance that I mentioned earlier. So the, this piece goes as follows. It's a citation, I'm not changing anything. One way deforestation leads to the emergence of new diseases is through fire. In mid-August 2019, a group of international experts on zoonotic diseases, that is, illnesses transmitted from animals to humans, met in Colombia to analyze the impact of the wildfires when underway in the Amazon. In their statement, they warned, the Amazon region of Brazil, endemic for many communicable or zoonotic diseases, can, after a wildfire, trigger a selection for survival and with it change the habitat and behaviors of some animal species. These can be reservoirs of zoonotic bacteria, viruses, and parasites. 
This wildfire scenario has already played out elsewhere. In 1988, huge fires in Indonesia created conditions allowing the emergence of the Naipakh virus, which has a morbidity rate of between 40% and 70%. Researchers believe that the outbreak of forests there caused fruit bats to flee their forest homes seeking food in orchards. Then pigs ate the fruit that the bats had nibbled, becoming infected with the virus, ultimately infected lo infecting local people who began to die from brain hemorrhages. Amazon fires are expected to grow far worse as agribusiness agri uses it as a tool to clear rainforest and as a climate change as climate change intensifies uh, drought there. So you can see that the pandemic that we are having this year in 2020 is also quite possible, possibly related to the changes in land use. This was already the case in Indonesia in 1988. And if we don't preserve the Amazon rainforest Brazilian part of it, Ecuadorian part of it, and so on. Uh, we might uh, as well find ourselves facing another pandemic that is most probably is going to be far worse than the one we are facing today. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out, um, ask me reach out to Danny, or if you want me to pass the questions, comments to him, I will gladly do, do so. I always do share with my guests the feedback from uh, the listeners. Uh, if you like the podcast, consider subscribing, sharing on your social media if you feel like, leaving a review. I would really appreciate a lot if you rate us on Podchaser. Uh, this is the page that I have access to. Uh, for example, if you're, if you're uh, listening on Pandora or Spotify or mm, some other platforms that are not supported in Ukraine, I, I have no access even to the website, to the stats. I don't see at all. I have no visibility over what's going on there. However, Podchaser, I find the page quite user-friendly, uh, well-made, well-designed and so on. So if you can leave us a review there uh, and probably follow there, uh, I will see it. And uh, be sure I reply each and every review and rating in person. So that's just me behind all of this. And yeah, by taking your time to give your honest feedback, you really help me improve my my production, if you want me to improve, I don't know, you name it, sound, uh, maybe I sound boring, maybe the sound is too, too poor, let me know, really, just let me know, I accept positive, negative, any, any feedback, I appreciate and welcome it, uh, yeah, and by rating and commenting on, on the platforms you're listening on, you also help other people discover it. And um, yeah, it's free. Please uh, um, use the content uh, the way you like. I'd also like to use this opportunity to invite you to check some other related episodes out. As always, uh, I do it regularly. So clearly, the most related to the interview we had today is the episode I recorded uh, from the Amazon when I visited in December for three days the remote area uh, of the Brazilian Amazon rainforest. Uh, there you will find the, the sounds of the Amazon, the birds, the, um, the people talking and so on. So I, I really made an attempt to create kind of a radio piece, uh, an audio journey. Uh, yeah, hope you will you will find connections there and maybe it will complete the puzzle at least a little bit. It will help you understand um, the, the dynamics of the rainforest. Another episode that I really, really like that, yeah, that gives um, a sense 
of discovery, a sense of joy about the nature that surrounds us uh, is the episode I did with uh, uh, the NASA's former climate science communicator, Laura Tenenbaum. And the episode is called Where the Challenges, There is an Opportunity. I, I really liked uh, talking to Laura and she, she was supposed to visit Ukraine in April this year. And I remember when we were speaking, I said, well, I will certainly be there. I saw it on her website. I, I will be there 100%. We will meet in person. And then the pandemic happened and the lockdown. And of course, no one traveled anywhere. So this is also kind of in a way related to the to, to this episode in a, in, a, in a personal level. Uh, the episode from last week, if you haven't heard it already, it's with James Elsmore on climate adaptation and resilience in remote rural areas and in particular the islands. Around the world is also um, nature, biodiversity uh, related. And um, yeah, I, I, I can certainly suggest you go in and listen to that one. Anyway, uh, that's it for today. I'd be happy if you connect with me on LinkedIn. You can send me your questions. You can suggest guests. Maybe you are the guest, the next guest of the show. Don't hesitate. Don't be shy. Uh, if there are any topics that uh, you're curious about and you think I can cover or I can find someone uh, to cover that for you, I try to reach out to professionals that are established in the field uh, that have something interesting and valuable to share so I can do that 100% just let me know if there are any topics any directions you would like me to explore or cover in the future I will do that this was sustainability explored as always episode you just listened to episode number 43 that was me your host Anna Chashina and thank you for listening for being with us today and until next Thursday until then take care stay sustainable bye bye